Roger Jorgensen was minding his own business in South Africa when Guy Brennan contacted the master distiller and winemaker. He'd heard of Roger and sent him some fresh African juniper berries from the mountains of Kenya and asked him if they could be used to make gin. Roger thought why not, scribbled some instructions on the back of the cigarette pack and sent it to Guy. Australian-born Guy has been working in almost all of Africa for some time, with development and microfinancing. He understands many things, but not how to make gin based on some scribbled instructions. He invited Roger to Kenya, who was immediately taken with the whole idea of making gin from fresh juniper berries. After all, with his winemaking, he never used dried raisins, always fresh. With something such as juniper, which has such a huge impact on the flavor of gin, why were gin distillers for the last 300 years content to use dried? Having now a master distiller at the helm, the potential of using fresh African juniper berries became clear even immediately off the still. However, as important as the use of berries was, Guy and the co-founders of Procera wanted everything to be African, from all the botanicals to the hand-blown glass bottles to even the stoppers. If you're suddenly hearing the sound of a cash register going off in the background, as all these costs are added up, you're not far off the mark. Is the world ready for an ultra-premium African gin with an accompanying ultra-premium price tag? Hi, I'm Vela Mitrovich. And I'm Ross McPherson. In today's episode of the Distillers Journal podcast, we'll be talking to Roger Jorgensen and Guy Brennan from their distillery in Kenya. While at this moment you might be thinking this is the craziest idea you've ever heard of, you won't be thinking that by the end. To address first the elephant in the room, in UK currently there are 820 gin distilleries ranging in all sizes and at least 80 contract gin distillers taking a very lowball number of free gins from each distillery. At any given time, the British consumer has access to 2,700 different gins. Add to this mix gins from Finland, Sweden, Iceland, the USA, Vietnam, India, Indonesia, Panama, and other locations. There must be at least 3,000 different gins available here. Does the UK really need another gin? And does it need a gin from Kenya? Roger Jorgensen begins the discussion, followed by Australian Guy Brennan. Also, seeing as we are talking to them live from Kenya, please forgive us for the birth noises in the background. There may be a lot of gins out there. It's an um, absolutely burgeoning category and there's no sign of the growth slowing down. There can be as many gins out there as there are, but absolutely not one of them makes gin from African juniper berries and hardly any, if any, make gin from fresh juniper berries picked directly from the tree. I think that sets us apart as an introduction. But does the UK need an ultra premium gin, let alone from Kenya? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's, if, if you sort of look at the history of the spirits category, every single category has premiumized with the exception of gin. 
And, and it's a good question why that hasn't happened. I mean, it's happening in agave spirits now. It's, it's happened in vodka previously, bourbon in, in North America and, and whiskey. Single malts became a thing reasonably recently in the grand scheme of things. Uh, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't how how it always was. Although if you look at it from today, it seems like single malts have always been around. Gin is, is the blue ocean where that has not happened. And, and there's a lot of reasons I think why that's not happened, um, but the way, the way we look at it, a, a category needs uh, needs to be spread out. There needs to be different options. The, the main reason why gin hasn't had a premiumization category uh, and product we feel is is that there's never really been a justification for why that product is, is more expensive. Um, and, and I think when, when you look at the, the business model we, we've undertaken and, and the incredible cost structure of using hand-blown bottles, hand-carved stoppers, collecting your juniper yourself and producing less than 100 bottles a day, there's a reason why people understand why Procera has to be more expensive. Um, it's not just a product which, which we've decided is going to be in a new category because we say so. It's because the actual cost structure of making it, and, and we don't want to sound immodest, but there's a lot of gins out there, as you say, but, but we believe gin's been made the wrong way for 300 years. Um, and I think sometimes it takes uh, a, a place with no history of distilling to, to maybe look at things a little bit differently, to be a little bit irreverent, um, and to say, well, why do you use dried juniper in gin? You don't really, no one, no one talks about fresh produce as something that's bad. Everyone, you know, as we say to people, if you make an apricot brandy, you don't use dried apricots. Why would you use the freshest apricots you can find? Gin's been made the wrong way for 300 years because people didn't have access to fresh juniper. They bought it in a dried, commoditized bag from a commodity broker and threw it in a still. If you have access, just 70 kilometers from here, of, of the only equatorial juniper in the world used to make gin, you, you have a real, a, a real resource. But that's also why we believe we're changing a category um, uh, quite actively. And, uh, and I think the proof is in the pudding when, when the best martini maker in, in the UK, Alessandro Palazzi, says that uh, the, the one gin he would take to a desert island to make a martini is Prosera gin. You've got, to, you've got to ask, why is that? When, when the IWSC uh, gives us 96 out of, out, of, uh, out of 100, when we win consistent double golds in blind tastings across the board, there is something different. And there's three things that are different about Prosera, but maybe I'm, uh, I'm jumping in a bit. We can, we can wait for some <laughs> to, to go into that a little bit later, Villa. You mentioned quite a bit, and quite a bit is putting it mildly, the use of fresh African juniper. But can the average gin drinker taste a difference? Or are you going after someone with a very sophisticated taste? It's not just African juniper, it's that it's grown at high altitude in the tropics. And these trees stick their head out through the clouds and they soak up African tropical sunshine 12 months of the year. That's crucial. The actual juniper itself is maybe a different species, but the reality of it is that it's it's brighter, fresher, greener, more citrusy, with nice earthy notes. So it turns out being more sort of piney than terpene. It's not dense and heavy and oily. It's lighter and fresher, and hence lovely to use. And that's just where it starts. The fact that we actually use it fresh and never dried is another bonus. And that's a luxury not available to, well, it's maybe a few other distillers in the world, but very few take advantage of it. Mm. It's a lot of work but it's very, very rewarding. Distilling with fresh, fresh juniper, 
as I say, never dried, um, gives me as a distiller an absolute edge in the um, uh, production process. We mm. can get bright, fresh, green, and subtle flavors into the gin, avoiding sort of heavy, dense, oily, cooked flavors. So it's an absolute luxury and a pleasure for us. If people use fresh juniper, a fresh fruit that hasn't been dried and had the soul taken out of it and it tastes of the terroir, you get a creamy viscosity that you cannot get from dried juniper. So when you try Prosera, it's really tangibly different. It's it's more syrupy and viscous. People accuse us of, of adding glycerine because of how, how syrupy the mouthfeel is, but that is just fresh juniper. And that's a real trademark and hallmark of fresh juniper gins. So that is one thing, but then this bright, nutty, earthy flavor, which comes from the juniper itself, combined with the freshness, really makes a gin that does stand out, that, that really does not just win awards, but from complicated palettes, I would say, uh, from sophisticated palettes of the best bartenders and judges in the world. But but I think when people try Prosera, who, who uh, are just normal everyday consumers, they, they do taste a difference. We we're, we're really quite surprised that consistently we people it's it's a very approachable gin for, for for all sorts of palates so what you're saying is in a way by using the first juniper it's very much like a winemaker who uses raisins as opposed to fresh grapes exactly that's um one of the descriptors we we use um frequently who makes wine out of raisins no you want the freshest grapes in perfect condition and equate that to our juniper harvesting that's exactly what we have people throw around the word terroir a little bit too much in spirits and you know we firmly believe that gin can be an, a terroir a spirit gin is made from 80 or 90 percent juniper that is the essence of the terroir no one none of the big companies no one talks about juniper because it's an ugly secret that it doesn't come from anywhere near where they grow it so the consumer is is not really very aware of how gin's made and and i guess that's a bit of an elephant in the room as well but we believe gin can become a terroir spirit if you do what we're doing and if you use fresh juniper you get the essence of that soul and the spirit those berries when you dry out a juniper berry you're not taking out h2o you're taking out the essence the soul the terroir of the place it, it grew and it's like the difference between agricole rum and uh, and molasses based rum you can move junipers all around like you can molasses that's not really for me a terroir spirit and then throwing in a pepper or a citrus from japan or from australia that's not the terroir the essence is the juniper that's 80 to 90 percent of the mash build so that's where the conversation needs to go and and that's why we feel as you know, there might be thousands of gins out there, but I wouldn't call any of them terroir spirits unless they're using fresh juniper. And that's hopefully where, where we can help be pioneers and, and move the, the discussion to the juniper, which it should be, rather than just a couple of things which make up 1% of the mash build. But if it was only this easy to use fresh juniper berries and stick that gin label on your bottle, the EU and various gin guilds have other ideas. Yeah, and that's something that's actually quite interesting. Uh, we, we had a bit of a, a conundrum early on. Uh, we, we made a green dot gin, which used African juniper. And we were told uh, we were not allowed in the EU to call it gin because it used Juniperus procera. And gin needs to be made under EU regulations with Juniperus communis. So well, we obviously felt that was completely ridiculous. And so we had a ridiculous solution, which is we put in a handful of 
communist berries into that uh, to be able to call it gin, but it made us think. And be, you know, as, as people who are really proud of, of the African continent and what we make and made us think, well, if, if we can't call this gin just using African juniper uh, berries, leaves and the wood, we should be looking at our own geographic protection. Gin's not geographically protected as such. London Dry is a technique, as you know, but we, we're, so we're looking at can Kenyan juniper spirit be a geographic protection that has to be made under certain conditions in Africa, unlike some other gins that, that, that have an African theme, um, made in, bottled in Africa with African botanicals and African juniper. So it made us sort of think about, you know, maybe we should throw off those colonial legacies and not call it gin. It's a Kenyan juniper spirit. Could you go over the rest of your botanicals that you use? Obviously, um, juniper is the, the hero botanical in any gin, um, but it's usually beautifully supported by citrus flavors. And here in Kenya, we are lucky enough to have indigenous limes, which we call Swahili lime, and a local orange, which is more akin to a tangerine than an orange, but we call that a pixie orange. So pixie orange and Swahili lime are the citrus elements. And then um, we take a tour around the spice islands of East Africa's um, Zanzibar and Pemba in Tanzania, where we collect mace and cardamom. I don't even know about mace. It's the arrow that surrounds the nutmeg. Yeah. And it's got yep. the most beautiful, delicate, sophisticated, um, similar notes to nutmeg, but, but finer. And then um, we travel across the ocean to Madagascar where we collect um, pink peppercorns. Not strictly a pepper, but it's um, also more of a seed, an arrow. And then off to West Africa where we use what we call Salim pepper, which is a spicy, pungent, smoky type of pepper from uh, Nigeria or Sierra Leone. Then we visit Morocco up north in the deserts to collect coriander seeds and or orris root powder. Orris root, of course, is the ground dried roots of the iris and it's used as a fixative in anything from gins and perfumes and potpourris. Um, wonderful stuff. And then in the hills, not far from where we pick the juniper, just outside Nairobi, we harvest um, green tea. So that's a sort of medley of spices that um, go to support our African juniper. Yep. Oh, and the Somali acacia honey. Oh, Don't yes, forget that one. Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> um, it's a little um, pet sort of thing of mine. Um, a few years ago, I discovered that honey distills beautifully in gin. You pick up none of the sweetness in the distillate, but lots of the floral aromatics. And the genesis of that is that we wanted to put acacia blossom into the, um, into the botanical mix. Um, but I don't know if you stood next to an acacia tree in blossom. You only got to reach your hand into those branches and there are so many thorns, you're going to come away very sad. Um, so looking at these acacia trees in bloom, we saw that the bees love the blossom. So we make the bees collect our acacia element. They collect the honey, we borrow it from the bees. And Guy and I tasted maybe 26 different honeys across East, East Africa to find the one we wanted. Um, beautiful honeys in Kenya, but the one that topped the list was actually from Somalia. So we used Somali, Somali acacia honey as our secret weapon in that gym. Can you explain the difference between your blue and green dot gins? And to all our listeners, let me explain this. 
If you see a bottle of Procera Gin, you will not see a label on it. You'll not see anything saying Procera Gin. You're going to see a blue dot or a green dot, and they even have a red dot, and that's it. Blue dots, um, uh, it would be unkind to say it's a general purpose gin. It's not. It was designed as a martini gin, but all gins have to be able to be used in a gin and tonic because that's the way 95% of the world is going to drink it. But in making Blue Dot um, a martini gin, we needed to have flavors that were subtle, elegant, um, sustainable on the palate, that long-lasting, um, but not too overpowering and not too highly alcoholic. Martinis are obviously served up as a neat spirit, um, but we found our Blue Dot bottled best and tasted best at 44% ABV. So that is our main gin, the most important one in our portfolio. But going on to sort of expand the, the vintage concept, we created um, first red dot and then green dot to do entirely different things. If we describe uh, blue dot as being essentially a martini gin, but makes a brilliant uh, gin and tonic, we found the world's cocktail bars were using anonymous gins to make strong gin cocktails. We're thinking here of like the red snapper, which is the gin version of a, a Bloody Mary and more particularly the Negroni. And Negroni is heavily dominated by the bitterness of Campari and the sweetness of red vermouth. And the gin is just um, an also ran, also mentioned. Well, we wanted a gin that would stand up and literally kick ass in a, in a modern Negroni. So um, we made Red Dot at a much higher ABV, it's 51%, but we made it packed with different flavors that you don't normally find on a, on a gin palette. Uh, yes, the juniper is there, yes, the citrus is there, but we packed the middle palette with umami flavors to give like a, like a, um, uh, like a soy tang in the middle of the palette. Uh, and for that, we used a really stinky fermented bean from West Africa and uh, crushed oyster shells and uh, again lots of tea because tea green tea is very umami but that's the middle palette right at the end of the palette we've packed five different african peppers into the medley so it's a real like attack of peppers on the end of the palette to make the gin stand up in a, in a strong negroni a richly flavored negroni and those peppers actually shine through and they kind of pinball around the palette to sort of bust up the sweetness of, of um, the vermouth and the bitterness of, of Campari. So that, that was a, a gin specifically made for that purpose. And in fact, my instruction from Guy when we made it, he said, I don't care if it tastes awful if you sip it neat, just make it do its job in a Negroni. It turns out it tastes just fine as a sipping gin or a gin and tonic as well. If suddenly the world's supply of tonic water disappeared, probably 90% or more, all gin distilleries would go out of business. As a producer of gin, do you see a world of gin drinks beyond G&Ts? It, it must go beyond yeah. G&Ts. I mean, I remember when, when I was in my 20s drinking in London pubs, um, one of the most popular cocktails was a gin and orange, uh, which is obviously gin and freshly squeezed orange juice. It remains delicious, but it's still not yeah. very popular. And then um, my word will take on tonic water. Uh, most of it's too sweet, too fizzy, but there is a plethora of brand new um, tonic waters on the market, uh, which describe themselves as being premium or super premium. 
I kind of take the view that um, we provide our own remedy to negate the need for these fancy tonic waters. Uh, on top of that, I, um, I refuse to pay more for the tonic mix in my gin and tonic <laughs> than for the actual gin shot itself. Um, so let, let, let me address our, our take on, on gin and tonic. We go to an awful lot of trouble to put a certain amount of very specific botanicals in specific ratios in to produce any of our gins. Now, knowing that most people in the world are going to want to make a gin and tonic, they're going to reach for that tonic bottle and what happens? The tonic water alters the flavour of the gin. It's sweet, much too sweet, and probably much too fizzy. And when making a gin and tonic, most self-respecting barmen are going to want to put their influence or twist on it. And that they're going to do by muddling in a bunch of rosemary or lavender or mint or cucumber or anything else they can lay their hand on from the herb garden or the flower garden. That to me just alters the nature of our gin so much that you, you can, I mean, do that by all means with a cheap gin, but not with Prozern. So we know people are going to do that. So we devised our own um, house um, homemade garnish for gin, which uh, we call botanical salt. And basically with blue dart, every single botanical, all the botanicals that are in blue dart, we take them fresh and then dry them and grind them to the finest powder. And then we blend that with Indian Ocean sea salt, hence botanical salt. And what happens if you, if you make up a gin and tonic, put gin, put ice, put tonic, and then just a little pinch of this botanical salt on the gin. And what happens? Firstly, um, the salt will have cut through the sweetness of tonic water. Salt is a, a flavor uh, and palate, a flavor enhancer and a palate stim stimulator. And the botanicals themselves hydrate in the tonic water and release flavors that mirror everything that is already in the gin. So what we're doing is amplifying um, the flavors of the gin without turning the corner down the basil or, or rosemary route. And we find that's very satisfying. It's very popular with clients. The barmen actually like it once they get used to the idea because they can make a show out of it and show the customers. Um, yeah, it's a great success. At the recent Imbibe show in London, I was talking to a gin maker from South Africa. When I told him the price of your gin, which for the blue dot is just shy of 80 pounds at House of Malt, with your green dot at 115 pounds, he gave me a shocked look and asked me, how can you justify the cost? And is there actually anyone out there willing to pay that much for a bottle of gin? And I guess my question to that guy was, how much does he pay for his bottle? The process costs a lot, but I would say we, for our, for our physical bottle, we probably pay 10 times more than he does. Our stopper alone probably costs three or four times what his bottle costs. There is a really different cost structure to using artisanal handmade things and, and paying fair prices to a supply chain that produces small amounts. So, you know, the, the process is very different. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure none of those guys have collected their own juniper. Um, I don't think they know their farmer. Mr. Co makes our mace in Zanzibar. We know him. Mr. Mataka farms our cardamom in, in Pemba. We, we know him. Um, we have details. We make 100 bottles a day. Probably they make 1,000 bottles a, an hour. 
there, there's some real differences which change a, a cost structure for a company. I'll be honest, at 100 bottles a, a, a day, you know, 2,500 a month. No one's getting rich at Prisera. <laughs> that, that's for sure. It's a, it's a very different cost structure. So that, that would be my question to, to them, you know. And I think that's also why gin has never premiumized because people say we know how much it costs in the industry, trade people and distillers. We're talking to distillers here. We know how much it costs to make to make the liquid. Um, and, and that that's a small fraction of it. So it's hard to justify that premium price. And usually with big brands by Ducati or Bacardi, uh, Diageo or Bacardi, all that money is basically your marketing spend. What we say to people is our cost structure is significant. I would say it's probably 15 times most other people's cost structure, if not more. And that gets multiplied by all the margins in a, in a supply chain to, to become quite a large amount when it gets on the shelf. Um, I think, who is going to buy that product? What, what I would say is that gin hasn't been, there hasn't been a premiumization in gin and that's because trade people haven't felt comfortable recommending an expensive gin that's 80 pounds without understanding why it's different, why it's revolutionizing a category, completely distilling in a different way, using a different species of juniper, using it fresh. It's obvious to everyone why fresh juniper should be used. Um, no one's done it. It obviously has cost structure implications. Um, but I think taking those things together, you put them in a package where even so, um, the most premium gin on, on the shelf within reason, the most premium entry or normal production without you know a couple of bottles of an ant gin or something like that is 80 pounds. Anyone, anyone in the UK can afford to buy an 80 pound bottle as a gift, as a luxury upsell. If, if your mother likes gin and you wanna buy a, a present for your mother, historically you could only find something that was 30 40 maybe 50 pounds you want you want to buy a premium product i, I want to spend 100 pounds for my mother's birthday on a gift and and you just can't do that even to this day in gin which is which is, or it's very hard to do and i think that's probably the answer to well who's buying that um i think there's a lot of people who who, who want to buy premium products there's a lot of people who are buying whiskies for over 100 pounds you know, if you can make a gin that's it's a sipping gin that sits on the shelf in the same way, a, a, you know, a 15, 25 year old bottle of, of whiskey or bourbon does. And you, you you don't have as your your everyday gin and tonic gin. You, you have every now and then on ice. You have it in a in a, in a martini. Um, I, I think there's a real market for that. And I, I think I think that our successor around around, you know, in the UK, in America, in Asia is speaking to who's buying it. There's people out there. Trust me. <laughs> you can also say to your South African doubting Thomas that um, <laughs> uh, he's probably never even seen a juniper tree. Probably not. And he's probably never tasted a fresh juniper off the tree. Uh, we go into the forest and we have cocktails, gin and tonic, harvesting parties. Um, we actually celebrate juniper. We don't buy it as a dry commodity. And there's a huge difference. Now would be a good time to talk about the distilling process. What type of base spirit do you use? Our base spirit is the most neutral um, ethanol that we can find and it's also produced here in Kenya from sugarcane so it's a it's a cane spirit which uh, we receive from the mountains of western Kenya at about 96.2 percent purity it's literally 
colourless, tasteless and odourless but it's a perfect blank canvas for distilling a gin because gin is going to lay so many layers of flavours onto that blank canvas. Our distilling process has kind of changed or revolutionised the way a, a 300 year old category looks at making gin. Traditionally, juniper berries were used to flavour spirit, uh, mostly because it has a strong positive dominant flavour and the alcohol that they wanted to consume was absolutely awful. It was real headache, nasty material and you needed a mixture of juniper and sugar to actually get it in your mouth. So we, we want a... Um, but, you know, modern technology and now allows us to acquire ethanol in its purest form and so our process is to we choose our botanicals and weigh them out all fresh wherever possible and especially the juniper and we we lightly crush them and then we put them in a pillowcase literally and we soak or macerate them in in warm ethanol overnight say 15 hours and then we remove the pillowcase and squeeze out the ethanol and rinse the botanicals in water and add that rinse water back to the pot. And so we are not actually distilling any um, actual botanicals in that pot. Now, traditionally, gin was made in, in a copper pot still and in goes alcohol of some sort in goes your chosen botanicals and if you fire up a still, a still like ours for example and with botanicals inside it the run is going to last six to eight hours now imagine you're putting all that plant material and cellulose and subjecting it to heat and ethanol for six to eight hours imagine what happens to the cellulose structure of all that plant material it absolutely disintegrates and releases all the heavier congeners and and um, dense cooked flavors. Um, you're basically stewing botanicals for eight hours. Now that is why an awful lot of gins when you sip them neat are extremely difficult to have in the mouth. Awkward, uh, dense, heavy, oily, um, not subtle at all. Uh, by distilling only the essence of the botanicals that we've extracted by macerating and no botanicals in the pot, there are no cooked dense burnt heavy flavours in, in Prosphora Gin, none at all. And the equipment that we use is state-of-the-art um, German equipment from the Muller family and that has a, um, a separating column in it which only allows the finest flavours to escape for condensing into gin. Everything heavy and dense like heavier oils, water and so on are, are subjugated or backranked and, and returned to the pot. So not only are we feeding that column with the finest possible spirit, con condense, uh, not condensate, vapour, um, that column is further refining it so that our gins come out soft in the mouth, delicate, fragrant, but complex, length of palate, nuanced in flavours. How do you distribute your gin? Yep, so we... Our first market um, the, the, outside of Kenya was the UK. We, we really felt that we, um, we were changing the way a, a lot of things are done in gin and we wanted to go to the home of gin. And so we went, went to London first, the UK. We're working with um, uh, an importer distributor, Axiom, who are one of the, the best in the game with ultra premium craft spirits. They only have one 
product in each category. Um, they're, they're an amazing team. Um, we have distributor partners in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in Australia, in, in different states in America. Um, and uh, yeah, so we work, we, work, we work with them and support them in, in the different markets. But yeah, the UK and London was our first market. Uh, and, and obviously in, in Kenya, in our home market, we, um, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're very active. It's, it's much easier to be involved uh, on your home turf between, between the local market um, in, in Nairobi, especially, and, and, the, and the tourism sector, and, and then direct to consumers as well. From the botanicals to the bottle, you've given this gin a huge amount of thought to make it a Kenyan gin. Where do you see your next steps leading you to? Roger is um, is as you as you can probably tell a, a really innovative uh, sort of uh, crazy genius. I talk about going to visit you know Yoda, our Jin Yoda in the Dagobah system for Star Wars fans, and 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 it's hard to keep him keep him back. He's obviously you know made the very first Feinbos Gin in South Africa, made Grappa brandy, every spirit under the sun, and Roger has a a million different ideas and things and and we see Kenya and Africa in general as as the you know the undistilled continent in in a way that the Amazon is this bounty of all these all these medicines and potential medicines we we see you know some people see that as a negative that Africa doesn't have these distilling traditions that that maybe sort of a Mexico or some other markets do we see that as an opportunity to really distill a continent that, that has the biggest diversity of natural produce from from you know from the beaches of the Indian Ocean to the Atlantic to mountains 6000 meters and and forests everything in between so i know Roger has a lot of other ideas and 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 think we have amazing sugarcane here we have agave plantations for sisal so there's a lot of other things that Roger's interested in but we we are we are a gin distillery and that is our focus we talk about your successes. What do you see as your biggest challenges? That's uh, that's a good question. I mean, I guess uh, already we're sort of suffering from uh, the challenge of of not being able to supply the markets that we're already in. Only making a hundred bottles a day. You know, the the, the Kenya is is just a, a huge market and very successful and. Uh, and, and which is just growing really quickly. The support uh, in Kenya of people super proud of the first premium, super ultra premium African spirit coming from Kenya with a tree that they all know and love. They don't know it's a juniper. People never knew it. It's called a cedar tree here. No one knew it was Juniperus procera. So people are really proud, but I think that's a, a big challenge, the, the lack of capacity. You know, we're in, we're in quite a few markets and, and the demand, it's, it's almost turning out to be on an allocation basis already this, this early. And so that, that's a really big challenge. We do want to share, share this product with more people. We're working with the glass makers to, to, to double their capacity again next year as well. But that's still only 200 bottles a, a, a day, so it, it doesn't get us as far as, as you know, I think uh, the demand would, 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 would want. But that's the, ma the, the main problem. I mean, being, being the first craft distillery in the country has its own challenges. You know, Africa and, and Kenya, uh, things aren't always as straightforward as they are maybe in some other countries. And so there are definitely challenges with regulation and, and being the first people uh, to, to, to be regulated. <coughs> So that's a little bit, but we're really proud and excited that there's six other distilleries that are in the process of opening up. So we've really been at the forefront and the vanguard of, of, of starting a, a new industry and hopefully an industry. We'd love it in 
future if in the way that there's Bordeaux and Burgundies on a on a shelf that there would be African juniper gins and Kenyan gins and it would be would be a category and you know watch this space there'll there'll, there'll be four or five six new new African uh, gins on on the market over the coming years and we're really proud and supportive of that we're working with those guys with with to get their licensing but also then to, to provide them with the top quality juniper you know the more this juniper is used the more we collect the juniper with the local communities and in each tree that's school fees for a family for a year and it also stops the trees being cut down because they're a goose that lays a golden egg every every year um, and the more there are, is demand for these junipers it's a new cash crop for Kenya Kenya has some of the best coffee and the best tea in the world all these great agricultural products this, it, the juniper we believe is the best juniper in the world as well that's tens of millions of dollars falling on the ground with no value last year now that has a value if we can convince Beefeater to buy 10 tons of African juniper for a limited edition run that's a few dollars per per kilogram to, to a direct to a family that's that makes a really big difference and not only stops people cutting down current trees but we're planting a tree for every bottle we sell so that's currently 15,000 bottles that shows you how small batch we are over the five years that we've planted and, and in seven to ten years they, they produce uh, juniper berries which is um, then uh, income for that family on, on the land that we've planted those so it's a real virtuous circle. If pundits are correct we'll be soon entering another recession if we're not in one already. Each day the papers have a news story about how we're all paying more for food, petrol and soon fuel for the winter months. In some ways, it seems like an odd time to be promoting gin in a hand-blown bottle, which will cost about the same as a week's groceries. However, as Diageo and some of the other big distillers are saying, now is the time to move into ultra-premium spirits. Customers might not be able to afford a winter holiday, but they can afford to have a couple of brilliant bottles of spirits during their holiday celebrations, which will be a real pleasure and treat. If what we observed during the 2008 recession and COVID-related downturn holds true, people will be drinking less, but will be drinking better. Procera could very well be at the right place at the right time with the right product. The Distillers Journal Podcast production Reby Media, produced and hosted by me, Vela Mitrovich. Sound engineering is by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, with executive producer Rory Harris. I'd like to give a special thanks to Guy Brennan and Roger Jorgensen of Procera, our sponsors, and most of all to you, our listening compadres. Have a good one.